Today is Monday, August 6th, 2018. Time for episode 58 of the Barnhart Podcast. This is the second installment of the Ask An Anything series of podcasts. If you haven't heard the first one, go back and listen to the first one. Lots of interesting questions and answers. And of course, Anne, before we get started, do you have any questions for me? Do I have any questions for you? Um, let me think. No, I'm ready. I'm prepared. Well, that was my tongue-in-cheek question last time. Is Before I start asking you a bunch of questions, I ask if you have a question for me. And uh, same as last time, no questions for me. So I'll just jump right into it. And same as last time, uh, several people asked several of these questions. So uh, there's there's no names associated with it, uh, mainly because I copied the the questions out of emails, uh, text messages, tweets, and and other media and put these in my planning document. So I forgot who asked what. So um, I apologize if you were looking for credit for a question, but you'll, you'll know when your question comes up. So the first question, on August 2nd, a man dressed like the Roman pontiff issued a statement claiming that the death penalty was not in accord with scripture and was therefore inadmissible. Assuming that the person in question wasn't playing dress up, and really was the successor of Peter, to what degree can the Pope simply change the catechism by edict? He can't. It's that simple. Um, and uh, I, I understand how that you, you hedged the question. You said, assuming that this man running around in white is what is what the world claims that he is. In fact, he doesn't even, I find it very interesting and I, I need to make a post on all of this is to go back and make a list of all of the ways that Bergoglio himself has, has denied that he is in fact the Pope um, from, you know, emerging on the loggia and, and only referring to himself as the Bishop of Rome um, stating that he was never going to make any um, ex cathedra, um, infallible statements. There's, there's all kinds of things. The fact that he never blesses anyone ever, he waves because it's a cult of personality about him and he has no supernatural faith. So he, if you watch him, he never, ever blesses anyone. And there's, there's a whole litany of things that we can go through, but it seems to me that this, this whole business, um, you know, I've got, I've got friends out there, people of goodwill, people that I love who are just, struggling with this and struggling with this and struggling with this. And I just keep trying to explain it to them. You know, these things happen and it's just another proof set that he isn't the Pope <laughs> because of course, of course the, the vicar of Christ on earth could not come out and say that what the church has taught consistently for 2000 years. And then before that, for however many thousand years in the old covenant and the old Testament, this is this is a consistent this is a consistent norm consistently taught you can't come out one day be the vicar of Christ on earth and say oh by the way and I'm going to use this cutesy pie this cutesy pie word inadmissible so that you know people like Father Hunnick God God bless him will will come out and say well you know he didn't say intrinsically evil so therefore it's okay um, it's just it's no big deal. He didn't say intrinsically evil. You know, we can play these these games. And I guess this this goes back to my previous life and my previous career and having to deal with with lawyers and so on and so forth. And I just I have I'm, I'm I just don't play these games. It's obvious what they're doing. It's obvious that they're trying to use this this legalese hedge language precisely because they know that these people are going to come out and bend over backwards 
and try to make this square peg fit in this round hole so that they won't be called sedevacantists, so that they won't risk or jeopardize their income, their pension, their career track, their job if they're a layperson who works, for example, for the Vatican or, or whatever. Um, people just in, in their effeminacy are not willing to stand up and just point at it and call it as the, the BS that it is. I got myself there trying to do better. Um, and so it, he comes out, he says this, everybody's framing this thing from, from the false premise that this guy who's running around in white is in fact the vicar of Christ on earth. And it's just one more proof set that he isn't and I'm sorry but all of this legalistic well he didn't say intrinsic evil and you know it doesn't say intrinsic evil in Latin on the you know in the official um, AAS you know the 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 Vatican's official uh, register of all official documents and and utterances and and so forth you know I'm sorry but those of us who have actually lived adult lives out in the world and know that there is there is objective reality and you can't allow yourself to be just bulldozed by lawyers and this this hyper legalism you know tying yourself in knots at some point you are going to run headlong into the wall of objective reality and you're going to have to deal with it and life is so simple and so easy if you just look at things like this and guys it's only going to get worse this is this is the camel's nose under the tent. It is obvious. It is as plain as the nose on your face. People are saying this was a wag the dog maneuver. Perhaps it was. Perhaps it was a wag the dog maneuver to try to distract from McCarrick and Whirl and you know the 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 cult of of child sex basically that the 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 episcopacy and the college of cardinals essentially is um maybe that certainly there's a probably a little bit of a wag the dog thing go, going on there this was good but they were going to do this anyway um and this death penalty thing this is the way to get the camel's nose under the tent once they once they have set this precedent and they look and they see that no one no one's going to do anything. In fact, everyone's going to bend over backwards to say, well, you know, you didn't use exactly this precise phrase or or verbiage. So therefore, it's OK. And I guess and, you know, there's people this is what blows my mind, man. And it's it just it's enough to almost make you just sit down and weep and I guess we should be sitting down and weeping people now on the right who are saying, well, it's clear that we have misunderstood the papacy, papal infallibility. It, it didn't mean for 2000 years what we thought it meant. I can't remember who someone just tweeted that or wrote that or something. And it's a prominent person on the right or, you know, conservative, tratty, whatever you want to call it. I can't remember who it is. I'll, I'll try to look it up and find who it is, but it, they're saying it, it, and it was in like within the last 36 hours, it's clear that we have misunderstood the papacy and papal infallibility and what all of this means. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? So in order to maintain your normalcy bias, and in order to maintain your job or your career or whatever it is, and, and in order to not have people 
call you a set of acantist, even though the truth is, is that the sea is very much occupied by Pope Benedict XVI, but so terrified that someone's going to call you completely falsely a a pejorative name based upon a group of of people who went off the rails a long time ago and are and have tendencies towards um, um, anti-Semitism, Holocaust denial, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, you don't, you can't see how clearly this chessboard has been set up with this. I mean, it's obvious. It's obvious what Satan has done. All the set of acantism and all these people who are crazy pants. Yeah, they are crazy. And but you know what in the world? And we've talked about this before. What in the world does the objective binary reality of whether or not the sea is occupied ha- have to do with? political affiliations, um, anti-Semitism. It isn't. It's been attached onto it. And this is Satan's great ploy. It's been attached onto it, but it has nothing to do with it. So, um, you know, this terror of being called a set of acantists and lumped in with all the SSP two and a halfers or, you know, Pope Michael on his, on his porch and all of that, you know, all those crazy people terrified won't, and and people just are so stuck in normalcy bias and are so terrified that they just keep they they see these things and it's like i said it's going to get worse camel's nose under the tent next is going to be um female ordination um ratification of sodomy i think father z is posting that they already have on the Vatican website. They already have two versions of the 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 JP two catechism, the the paragraph on homosexuality. They have two versions of it already on the Vatican website. One says it is intrinsically disordered. The other one says that um, sodomites, quote unquote, do not choose to be to be sodomites, which is absolutely positively 100% wrong 100% wrong of course it's freely chosen the overarching pathology is diabolical narcissism which is by definition the free choice the free choice to purge yourself of charity and then what's a derivative of that is sexual perversion and of course it's freely chosen I had um I was actually visiting with someone um, earlier this week, and it's very sad, but someone that I am very distantly related to, like third cousins or something like that. I'd have to get out a flow chart and figure out what, what exactly the relation is. But I found out very sadly that one of one of my third cousins who's younger than I am um, married a guy the guy decided um years several years into the marriage and immediately after the birth of their first child that he was going to be a sodomite and so the rebellion in that it's obvious what happened the rebellion in that is that this person that i'm distantly related to said all right that's it i'm not going to get hurt anymore this is so incredibly painful i'm not going to love in one capacity or another made the free choice to voluntarily purge themselves of charity, that is love, and then guess what's happened? 
The husband decided that he was going to turn sodomite, and in reaction to that, the wife decided that she was going to turn sodomite as well. These things are freely chosen. And whether it's the result of, of some external trauma or not, something like that, having your husband run off on you, um, being being sexually molested as, as a child or as a, as a youngster, as we're seeing now with all this McCarrick stuff, all freely chosen. They already have the lie ready to go on the Vatican website that says that that sodomites do not freely choose their quote unquote orientation. It's a lie. So what can we expect coming down the pike in the wake of this female uh, attempts at female ordination? They'll, they'll start with deaconettes. And then after that, it's just a matter of time before they'll be doing, you know, female quote unquote priests and, and bishops. And of course, at that point, those things aren't valid. So that is 100% the anti-church. There's there's no way that um, this of any sort of a um, female quote unquote ordained to major orders that that is not the church. And there's that paradigm cannot by definition subsist inside of the church. That at that point that is a full blown schism anti-church there it is abomination of desolation standing in the sanctuary there it will be um ratification of sodomy i mean whatever else is is on their agenda um any any anything and everything by this maneuver and the fact that they've seen the reaction to this death penalty thing and it's completely toothless and where's cardinal burke where's anybody where are any of these quote unquote good bishops oh my bishop is good like hell your bishop is good you know why i can say that because your bishop hasn't said jack shit because nobody not one of them has said jack shit so therefore mathematically we know can't can't be a good bishop by definition where the hell is Cardinal Burke? Where in the hell are these people? What are they waiting for? What what does Bergoglio have to do? Well, the fact of the matter is, is they're never going to speak up. And we all know it. And we've been talking about this forever and ever. I've been screaming and beating the drum on this for years. Why don't any of them speak up? Because they're all blackmailable. They're all effeminate. They're all blackmailable. The vast majority of them are sodomites. And when when you're talking about sodomites, the thing, the highest priority for sodomites is the sodomy. And this is what people don't get. Left, right, conservative, liberal, trad, if we're talking about sodomites, all of that other stuff is completely subordinated to the sodomy. They define themselves by the sodomy. It is their entire being revolves around the sodomy. Look, look at main, you know, secular mainstream sodomites. Do, do you not see this? These people define themselves absolutely define themselves by these disgusting, perverse, um, quote unquote, sex acts or genital acts that they commit. They absolutely define themselves by this. They are the incarnation of this. They are, I mean, for all of us who are, you know, psychosexually normal, I mean, the notion that I, that how I think about myself, define myself, 
wake up in the morning, go to bed at night, live my life all day long. The notion that, you know, what I what I do or not do with my reproductive bits is is the primary category by which I define myself. I mean, just stop and think about that. Think about how just freakish that is and how wrong and how inhuman in a way to, to, to reduce yourself to that. I'm telling you, that's what these people are. They define themselves by that. It is what they owe their loyalty, loyalty to. It's, it is their top priority, continuance of the sodomy. And so you've got people on the far right and on the far left who you know, all this time, all these years have not been ratting each other out. We also see this in, in politics. There was a spate about, oh, I don't know, what's it been 10, 12, 15 years ago, where there were several Republican um, Congress critters. Oh, yeah, like Larry that, Craig. Yeah, like Larry Craig. And then there was another one, a younger guy. I mean, and, and they were exposed and Larry Craig was was um, cruising bathrooms in airports and things like this and doing what sodomites do. Okay, every they all knew. Again, you want to talk about open secret? It's exactly the same thing in in the halls of in the halls of government. It's exactly the same thing in the corporate world. It's exactly the same thing in Hollywood. All these people know. Everybody knows. Why in the hell didn't? Um, I mean, who's somebody on the far left? Nancy Pelosi. Why didn't Nancy Pelosi expose? Um, what's his name? Larry Craig, who was a Republican from, I believe, Idaho. I think I want I think it was Idaho. Why didn't Nancy Pelosi or any of the rest of them on the left, as soon as they find out that Larry Craig is is a fag and is cruising, cruising bathrooms for sex? Why don't they blow the whistle on this guy? Because for all of these people you know, it's it's you protect the sodomy first. You keep people like that in position, and you and you relish and enjoy that you can blackmail people. You you delight in the fact that you can hold this crap over people's heads. That's who you want. That's who you want to surround yourself with. So you can sit back and say, I could blackmail him. I could blackmail him. I could blackmail him. You don't expose it because if you expose it, then then the paradigm is over, and there's no more there's no more satisfaction to it. The satisfaction for these people is in the power play of knowing that you can blackmail them. And when you're talking about other sodomites, again, the, the, the whole left-right thing in, in Washington, D.C., and a lot of people have been saying this for a lot of years. We've been in the, in the U.S., we've just been duped into thinking that there's any sort of actual difference or antagonism between the two sides. It's just it's two different profit centers. You have to have two profit centers so that you can constantly be having elections and doing fundraising. And then these billions and billions and billions of dollars can be cross invoiced and people can. And this is a wildly, wildly profitable paradigm. You have to have the two sides. But deep down, it doesn't matter. It's all a joke. It's all a fiction. It's the same thing. It's the same thing in the church. All these people know 
people on the right have known that people on the left are sodomites. People on the left have known that people on the right are sodomites. And it and it just keeps going and it just keeps getting perpetuated. Um, news tonight, just as this is now being recorded, is that... Um, who who is it? Uh, Neenstedt, who is the one who is up in like Minneapolis, St. Paul, I think, um, got booted out. Um, he was very he was quote unquote conservative. Did old mass stuff, you know, set, celebrated the old mass. Did old right confirmations. Da da da. Great great friend in scare quotes of of tradition and so forth oh neenstead neenstead yeah it turns out he's cruising seminaries too and he can't keep his hands off off seminarians okay he finally gets exposed he gets booted what what do they do they send him out to be like to be a chaplain in residence of some think tank in, in Napa, California, in like one of the most luxurious, prestigious places in the United States to live, this guy's out there living the life of Riley. They start pulling up and saying, okay, look, since this guy was exposed as being a predator of seminarians, the, he's been out there and it's just all of the all of the names on the right have been going out there and doing events with him, Shapue out there doing events with him all the all the bishops who are considered to be on the right in the American church nobody has any problem associating with this guy Neenstedt even though he was publicly removed from um Minneapolis for for cruising and sexually assaulting and sodomizing seminarians okay uh, what do you even say what do you even say to that is there nothing that anyone can do at this point at which anyone will draw the line and say, no, I will have nothing, nothing to do with this? Apparently not. Apparently not. There's just such such a lack of integrity. So, wow, this was quite a tangent. The original question was Bergoglio comes out and says... Um, that the death penalty is inadmissible. But you also covered... Uh, something else. It was a it was a question that came up in conversation that I didn't realize was a current question. Somebody mm-hmm. sent me a link to the um, to the Catechism of the Catholic Church on the Vatican website, and apparently, if you remove one of the underscores and the and the URL, you see different versions of the same document. And I was looking at yep. that, talking about um, same sex attraction. And I was like, well, wait a minute, when did the term um, go away of it being a, a, a inherently disordered activity? Both both versions were 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 different. And uh, I didn't do all the permutations of the URL, or maybe I would have figured this out. So, yes, it's a long answer, but you're, you're covering multiple answers at the same time. And in a way, it also you know kind of makes one of the other questions that was asked, what are your thoughts on married priests? And if the idea of priests being able to get married is normalized, I think that's a lesser evil in a sense, although socially it's a, it complicates and muddies things up a lot more. At least you don't have people in inordinate vice, but, um, Oh, you want me to go off now? No, let's talk about, the question was, what are your thoughts on married priests? But what I do want to say be, before, yeah. before going into that, I'm going to put uh, okay. a link in the show notes to, um, Matt Walsh's podcast on Friday. I refer to it as a 12 run grand slam where he goes through the, you know, breaking down the, the um, announcement on the inadmissibility of, 
of the death penalty. Well, if based on a new insight into human nature, we can make these kinds of comments about the death penalty, then what else can we redefine? was yep. one of the core points he made. And I'm also going to post a link to a, the audio of a sermon that was uh, published yesterday, as a matter of fact. Um, who, who the priest goes through a lot of the scriptural proofs that uh, the scripture itself proves that our Lord approves of the death, uh, of the death penalty. I mean, obviously, he had ample opportunity himself, uh, Jesus being um, subject to the death penalty at the hands of the Roman state, to say this is wrong. I mean, when when mm-hmm. when he when he talked to Pilate, he didn't say you don't have the right to put somebody to death. I'm God. I know what, what rights you have. He said the rights you have come from God. He didn't he didn't contradict the fact that that the ruler has the power of the sword, that the state has the power of the sword and can execute. So and anyway. also also remember another thing about um, the Gospels about the death penalty that I don't think I've seen anyone mention is remember um, what the good thief said. The good thief said, we deserve this. And our Lord didn't say, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, it, it, that's just another, it's it's a little bit uh, glancing, but not, not really. It's in scripture. It's right there. The good thief said it. We deserve this. No, no correction came from our Lord. And in fact, it was precisely because of his death, on the cross, uh, on his cross, that the good thief w- was in fact able to repent and and enter. You know, go, can you imagine? You know, go down in do the harrowing of hell. Go with our Lord and assist him in the harrowing of hell. That's just absolutely amazing. You know, um, and the death penalty is in fact it, it it speaks to the dignity of man. That's why it's such a this is so satanic that, you know, Bergoglio and his people come out and say, um, because it, it, it denies, it denies the dignity of man. It's, it's exactly the opposite. The death penalty speaks to the dignity of man that we aren't animals and that you, you are responsible for, for your actions. You have free will. You are created in the image and likeness of God. You are a rational intellect. You have free will. It, this is the death penalty is completely tied up with human dignity. And if I'm sure everybody or most everyone listening has, you know, reread the passage that I posted and I've posted it numerous times now over the years by, by John senior saying pretty much exactly this. Um, you know, if man is not free to choose the evil that he does, neither is he free to choose the good. Um, and so therefore, again, speaking to the dignity of man, if you deny a man, the justice that is due to him, you are denying his dignity as a human being. And I, I think this could get very, very quickly tied up with, and where we see it manifested is in questions of racism. Um, there is, I think there's a problem with people get into a mindset and it's kind of a subconscious mindset, but especially in the U.S., that people get into the mindset that black people really can't control themselves. And the reason why there are so many, there's such a disproportionate um, percentage of the prison population in the United States are black people is because, well, dirty little secret, black people really can't control themselves. See, that's exactly wrong. 
and that's where this all gets tied up into that. Um, black people have are made in the image and likeness of God in exactly the same way as white people and yellow people and red people and everyone else. And it, the problem is their culture. The problem is the rap hip hop culture. But what people tend to do is get lazy and just kind of subconsciously say, well, you know, it's it, it's they're not really technically able to control themselves. And so, yeah, they're going to be more prone to commit crimes and take the easy way out and live a less moral life because let's face it, morality, living a moral life is hard and it requires making tough choices and making sacrifices. And, you know, black people, they're, they're just they're just not equipped they're not equipped to be able to, to do that. That is what is implied by all of that. That's what's implied. And so it all gets tied up with that. You know, Bergoglio said people shouldn't even be imprisoned for life. Shouldn't even be imprisoned for life. And that this is a move on, on the Soros side of the spectrum um, is to, you know, just basically empty out the prisons. Why? Because that destabilizes society. What what is Bergoglio's theme? What what is his motto? What is his true anti-papal motto? If if a oh, uh, raise hell. If an, that's right. It's Agan Leo, which colloquially colloquially translated means raise hell or do chaos. Okay, so that's what that means, and um, that's that's what they're driving. The Soros situation is driving all of that towards this this chaos, this destabilization. Yeah, don't even don't even imprison people. Um, no no real justice, no holding anyone accountable for anything that they do. This also, and I cover this in the diabolical narcissism video. This touches on the the enormous problem of modern psychology, which again. Who's the father of this? Freemasons, Sigmund Freud, et cetera, et cetera. It denies that there's any such thing as sin, which we can clearly see is deep down the core agenda of the Bergoglian anti-papacy. It's just denying sin. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law, which is, in case you all don't know, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law is, is the creed of Satanism. I mean, seriously, not not joking, not being facetious. That is the creed of Satanism. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Um, and so, oh, I lost my train of thought. Where was I going with this? I don't know, but we were trying to get back around to married priests. Married priests. Well, uh, justice, death penalty, black people. Blah, oh, I can't remember. But, you know, it, oh, chaos, foment, fomenting chaos. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Um, it's it's the Soros agenda, it's the Freemasons agenda, and ultimately what that means is, is it's Satan's agenda. And so that's where we are. Now, would you like to ask me about married priests? And what are your thoughts on married priests? No, 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 no. And again, again, this is an obvious, obvious tactic of Satan. He's wanting to convince everyone that the problem in all of this is that these guys, these men, um, because the priesthood is called to celibacy, which means not being married, chastity, which means um, being 
not just not having sex, but I mean, married people are expected to live chastely in chastity and what chastity means within the context of a man and woman who are married to each other is that they engage in in um the marital embrace in a morally licit way they they do it right in other words so that's what chastity means and of course if you're if you're celibate which means you're not married then of course the only way that you can be chaste is if you are abstaining from all sexual activity including um solitary now obviously you can't if you masturbate that is unchaste um, and then the third word, the third C word that you have to know the, the definition of is continence. And continence means not having sex. So married people can, um, for whatever reason, make the executive decision together to live in continence, which means that you're still married, but you stop having sex. You don't have sex. This is what... The situation was in the very, very early days of the church when obviously everyone, almost all of the men who were being ordained priests and bishops, starting with 11 of the 12 apostles, were married men. Here's, here's the dirty little secret and here's what no one wants to talk about and what no one will say. John was the was probably the only unmarried man among the 12. And we know he was unmarried because it's it says explicitly that he was a virgin. OK, he's unmarried. We should therefore assume that all of the rest of them were married, either married or widowers. Um, but probably a lot of them were married as soon as the as the as our Lord ordained them to the priesthood. And then of course they were all um, ordained to the episcopacy uh, immediately as well. All sexual activity with their wives stopped. They lived incontinence from that point forward. Everyone in the church understood this for centuries and centuries and centuries. It's only up until the corruption of the last 100 years that this has even become a question. So can a married man be ordained a priest? Sure, absolutely. But he is then expected to live in perfect, perpetual continence. Also deacons expected to live in perfect perpetual continence. And if I'm not mistaken, I think this is still on the books. I think this is still in, in canon law. This is the, without any doubt or question, and um, super nerd, make a note, I will send you a link to a very good piece. Um, it's a doctoral thesis, and then a summary of a doctoral thesis by a woman who studied the, the the this paradigm of married priests and celibacy and so forth in the early days of the church and it's it's so well done and sh this woman just shreds any notion that that these men in the early days of the church were anything except perfectly and perpetually continent after they were were ordained to the priesthood i mean for goodness sake 
it, you look at the old covenant when the the sacrifice is just you know greasing animals, greasing bulls and greasing um, goats and sheep and so on and so forth. When the Jewish priests, when they rotated into the temple and it was their shift and they had to do um, their two weeks or whatever it was in the temple and they were offering the the animal sacrifice of the Old Testament. Absolutely, they were expected that there was a period of continence leading up to that. And then, of course, while they're doing their their priestly stint for two weeks in the temple goes without saying goes without saying that they have to be observing uh, observing continence. Now, let's look at the contemporary priesthood, the 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 priesthood um, of of the new covenant of, of the church. The priest is espoused to the church, and thus in a certain sense, is it can also be said in the sense that we're all espoused to Christ. I mean, putting aside these, these categories of, well, you're saying a man is, espous- is espoused to another man. Oh, you know, come on, stay with me here, stay with me. The priest is espoused to the church, and, in, and thus is also in a certain sense espoused to Christ. It is absolutely insane, insane to to say that priests should be up on the altar offering the holy sacrifice, which is a has a nuptial motif that is in fact even antecedent to the sacrificial motif. There's three motifs of the holy sacrifice of the mass. Sacrifice, obviously, nuptial motif. And third is meal, the motif of of the communal meal. Um, So you have to have the nuptial motif antecedent to the sacrificial motif because the bridegroom sacrifices himself for the bride because that nuptial relationship is already there. It doesn't make any sense to say the sacrifice came first and then, oh, after that, there's a nuptial relationship. No, no, no. You have this nuptial relationship first. There's that love. You have that love. And then what proceeds out of that love is precisely the bridegroom sacrificing himself for the bride, for the church, for us. Okay? So... You, you have in the sacrifice of the mass, the offering, the holy sacrifice. It is a profoundly nuptial act. And if you will also link to this in the show notes, I wrote a piece years ago and it's, it's yielded, it's yielded conversions. I've received many emails from people who saying that they have entered the church because of this essay, that they have switched from Novus Ordo to, to traditional um, liturgies because of this essay, and I've now heard from two priests who came uh, came over um, either as Anglicans or Lutherans or or whatever, married men who came over were ordained Catholic priests, read that essay and and realized, oh my gosh, I my wife and I we need to stop engaging in the marital embrace and we need to live in perfect continence. We're still going to be married. We're still, we're still married to each other and we still love each other and everything else. But the days of, of um, engaging in the marital embrace and not living in continence, those days are over because now I am a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
I am offering the holy sacrifice of the mass. I am espoused to the church. And therefore, I can't have two wives in a certain sense. You see, there's there's a whole swirling thing of adultery around this. I can't have two spouses. Um, so or I can't I can't be engaging in in a, uh, in a deeply uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for conjugal. I can't be engaging in the deeply conjugal act both with the church when I offer the holy sacrifice and also I go home and then I have sex with my wife. I mean, that doesn't, that doesn't jive. And everybody understood this. This was just, guys, this was common sense. This is a function, I'm convinced, of diabolical disorientation and the fact that the Novus Ordo makes people stupid and you can't think and see your way, think in a logical way and see what was just glaringly obvious to so many people for so long. And you say, well, Anne, what about the East? Yeah, the East has problems. And one of the big, big problems that the East has, and I'm talking about, you know, Russian Orthodox, um, Greek Orthodox, the guy, not, not the Eastern Catholic Church, not the Catholic Church with the Byzantine Rite, uh, even though they've kind of picked up on this too. I, it's, it's, they have married priests and this this is wrong. And at, at the triumph of the Immaculate Heart, when all is restored, I'm telling you, there is not going to be any more business of men who are offering the holy sacrifice, licitly having wives that they are sexually active with. It's all going to stop. It's wrong. And it's a manifestation of the problems. And it's a manifestation of the problems in the East Eastern Orthodoxy is completely unsound on divorce and remarriage um, and has been for quite some time. It's completely unsound on contraception. So that, that brings up another point. There's a lot of people who are watching this go on in the church and saying, well, I, I have to get out of here. I look at look at what Bergoglio's doing and, and look at how, you know, he's attacking marriage and he's attacking this and he's attacking that. And and I'm going to I'm going to run off and I'm going to go to the Eastern Orthodox what are you talking about? Out of the frying pan and into the fire. The Eastern Orthodox have been at the forefront of, of tearing down marriage and and ratifying contraception and things like this. You're saying you're going to escape from, from Bergoglio, anti-Pope Bergoglio and the anti-church, and you're going to go crawl into bed with the Eastern Orthodox who are doing exactly the things that are driving you away from, from Bergoglio? That makes no sense whatsoever. So no, absolutely not. And an extremely important point about all this is that it is, it is beyond offensive. It is beyond offensive to make any sort of an argument that if a person is, is chaste and is not having sex, that that turns a person into a sex pervert. That I'm sorry, this, this makes me absolutely livid and that is the argument that essentially is being made and is at the root of all of this even though even maybe it isn't said explicitly although it's it's pretty close to being said explicitly the reason why these guys turn gay and go start diddling teenage boys is because well if if they could just have sex with if they could just have wives and be having sex with a woman it's precisely, it's because they're expected to live in perfect chastity that makes them descend into sexual perversion. 
bullshit. Bullshit. Don't you dare, don't you dare make that argument anywhere around me. And if you do, I'm going to call your ass out. That is one of the most patently offensive things I think I've ever heard in my entire life. Chastity, living, you know, following the law. Our Lord said, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. Okay. So you're telling me that being perfectly chaste is going to, is going to turn me into a sex pervert. How dare you? How dare you say such a thing? And, and that our Lord asks people, asks his priests and asks his religious to be, to be perfectly chaste. Oh, by the way, this is also going to turn you into a sodomite pedophile. Um, and this is, this is, this is evil. And it's so, it's so transparently evil and so of the devil that I don't understand. And yet you've got people everywhere, including now on the trad right. Well, maybe people, maybe they're right. Maybe we just do need to let priests get married and, and this will solve everything. No, it won't. And what all of this, all of this business of uh, agitating for the elimination of priestly ce- priestly celibacy and the camel's nose under the tent was this um, advent within the last few decades in the Novus Ordo Church of these permanent deacons. What the permanent deacon thing is a disaster. It it needs to stop. It it has it what it is what that has been about is that has been about getting men on the altar who are sexually active, who are openly sexually active. Now, let's put aside the fact that we have all these sodomites who are up on the altar offering the holy sacrifice, but there's not there's not a public dimension to that. There's not an official dimension to that. That's just, you know, a criminal activity that these men are engaging in. This permanent deacon thing, you have openly the church saying, here are these married men who are not living in continence with their wives, who are sexually active with their wives, who are up on the altar while the holy sacrifice is being offered. That is the camel's nose under the tent. That's what all that permanent deacon stuff was about, to get people used to this notion that it's okay to have men who are sexually active on the altar. And now it's going to go, they're going to take it to the priesthood. And it it's going to start with having, you know, heterosexual married men sexually active as the priest offering the holy sacrifice publicly affirmed by the church. And then it's going to go if there's no supernatural intervention and we just keep going like this. It's going to go to where the Anglicans are, where there are sodomite, quote unquote, married men who are going to be on the altar offering the holy sacrifice and it's going to be a public it's going to be a public thing that these sodomite men are there sexually uh, sodomitically active publicly sodomitically active with the with the approval and ratification of the anti-church and they will be on the altar offering the holy sacrifice now that's the that's the anti-church again abomination of desolation clearly you can have nothing whatever to do with this um, and it's it's interesting. Um, that's going to be the big point of discernment for for pretty much all of us is when when does the anti-church split off? Um, but the thing and I've said this before, the thing that we can be absolutely assured of is that the church will be visible. It will be visible. It will be ident- the true church. It will be visible, identifiable, 
we're going to be able to know what is the church and what isn't the church because our Lord isn't a jerk. Now there's all kinds of blindness and diabolical confusion. And, you know, obviously people are going to be, most people are going to be wildly mistaken about this, but always rest assured that it will always be possible for the true remnant faithful who hold the Catholic faith whole and entire to look see and recognize what is anti-church and what is church. So, you know, just pray, pray without, without ceasing that you always be close and able to get to mass at least, at least once a week. Um, my prayer is that I'm, I'm kept close to the mass daily. In fact, daily walking distance is, is my prayer. So there you go. That's my rant on priestly celibacy. Well, an interesting question that uh, I don't know if it directly goes along with this theme, but given the, um, I guess, somber or dark theme that we've uh, sort of been talking about for a while here in this episode, um, I guess this question sort of fits in. And who is the Antichrist? I don't know. I don't know. Um, you you know, and the readership out there, I I have suspected for quite some time now that Bergoglio is in fact the false prophet forerunner of the Antichrist, that he is in fact the anti-John the Baptist. Um, because remember, what, what was John the Baptist's job? To make straight the paths, make straight the way of the Lord, to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. What is Bergoglio doing? He's making everything crooked, He's making everything unclear. He's making everything confusing. And can it not then be be reasonably speculated that he is in fact preparing the way for the coming of the Antichrist? Um, I don't think that Bergoglio is the Antichrist. Um, the Antichrist is going to be ethnically Jewish. We know that. Um, he's going to be he's going to be young. He's going to be attractive. He's going to be, um, you know really, really compelling. Um, it, so that, it says that, that rules out Mark Zuckerberg, by the way, because Zuckerberg yeah, right. is not compelling or attractive. Exactly, exactly. Um, no, it's going to be someone who has an extremely dynamic and, and in, in a worldly sense, attractive persona. Um, and I, I don't know who that is, um, but I strongly suspect that he's here on earth right now that that he's around. I mean, if if Bergoglio is the false prophet forerunner of the Antichrist, then, you know, Bergoglio's 80 some odd years old. By definition, that means that the Antichrist is alive. And who was it who said, was it Padre Pio? I think Padre Pio said not long before he died in the late 60s that the Antichrist was alive on the earth. And that would, you know, that would put Okay, someone born in 68 or 69 is 50 or or so. Um, if that's the case, then yeah, that would be just about right for someone, for a man to ascend into massive political power. Um, but again, I'm not saying I know. And uh, people who claim that they do know and they know exactly when the end of the world is going to be and this, that, and the other is going to happen – um, con artists almost to a man, but we do, we do have, um, you know, the testimony of our lady and so forth and, and prophecy. And 
And our Lord says, you know, you can look at the weather and you can see what's going to happen when you look up at the clouds and you look at the weather. You you kind of need to be able to read the signs of the times, too. You need to look at what's going around. And it's not it's not wrong or illicit to step back, pull the focus back, look at the big picture. What in the hell is going on here? Put the whole big picture together in the way that we put, you know, the weather together when you look at the entire sky. Um and say, okay, this is pretty compelling evidence that we're getting ready to have one hell of a storm, or this is compelling evidence that we're getting ready to have some sort of a massive, massive upheaval, um, and that what Our Lady prophesied, or or what Our Lady said um, at Fatima, and and so on and so forth, that this, this is for real, and it's getting ready to happen. So there are your... Your indications, and obviously, I think we've mentioned before that prophecy can only be understood in its completion. And I, I have wondered whether or not, when the Antichrist really comes to power, how many people won't even recognize it. Oh yeah, well, that's. I think that goes without saying. I mean, if if he if he is obviously the Antichrist, and I mean, you know, the whole notion of the devil running around in a red spandex suit with a tail and cloven hooves and twirling, twirling a mustache and running around like some sort of a damn Bond villain where, you know, it's just obvious. That's not how he operates. That's not how he operates. In fact, the vast majority of the time, he and demons will attempt to manifest as beauty. They will attempt to manifest as beauty and goodness and try to trick us into this. And, you know, how, how naive could you be to think that, of course, the entire world will be swooning over the Antichrist? The other thing the Antichrist is going to be able to do is it's, it's going to appear that he's performing actual miracles, um, of course, people are going to fall for that. That's the entire point. That's why this is all laid out in prophecy and in scripture. Um, and and our Lord himself said, if if it weren't for me shortening those days, then even the elect would be deceived. Even the elect would be deceived. And that that's humbling. That is really humbling. And that should just that should make you sit up and say, oh, my gosh, this is going to be this is going to be intense and I'm going to I'm going to have to be I'm, I need to be psychologically preparing for this. I need to be intellectually preparing for this as we're doing right now. What is this going to look like? What can we expect? Make sure that you're not tricked make sure that you're not fooled. Make sure that you don't, you know, go along with the herd. I mean, at this point, to me, it's pretty it's pretty easy to think that or pretty easy to, to see that whatever the secular world is in favor of, I think by now it's pretty, it's pretty easy to say that uh, anybody who's an actual believing Catholic needs to be in, in complete and total opposition of whatever the secular world is going along with. So in that sense, it's going to be, if you have that, you know, mathematical paradigm in place, it's, it's not going to be too terribly hard. I don't think to, to discern it, but then you know what? Don't don't be overconfident about it. Remember what our Lord said: If I didn't cut those days short, even the elect would be deceived. Um, and if you 
<laughs> if you consider yourself or have any aspirations to being the elect, then those words should um, just put you right back in your place that even even you could be tricked and many people like you will be tricked. And on the topic of looking into the future and trying to anticipate, um, I guess, hidden knowledge, and where do you stand on the books, life, and etc. of Father Malachi Martin? Um, obviously, I've I've referenced them a lot. Um, I've I had the whole story told to me one time. I can't remember all of the details. I'm certainly no expert on Martin. You know, I know that he was he was Cardinal Bay's secretary, and that's not good. Um, Bay is the one who came out with the Bay Assaulter and was involved with the, you know, the 1955 liturgical beginnings of the, the liturgical attack, you know, in the middle of the 20th century. Um, Malachi Martin was a Jesuit. He left the Jesuits. However, he maintained, um, he maintained celibacy and many people say that he maintained chastity, that he didn't, he wasn't out screwing women, he had a couple of female associates that in retrospect, he probably shouldn't have had. Um, and the other thing that he did was he continued to pray the, the entire divine office every day. And now that just because someone prays the in, praise or recites the entire divine office every day is certainly not, you know, a foolproof 100% indication of anything. But but you can also you can take that bit of evidence and you can put it, you know, on one side of the scale or the other. And yes, he did continue to recite and pray the entire office every day. Um, as we've discussed before, I've had I was reached out to by Agnes, who is the little girl who was raped in the opening scene of Windswept House. She said it's all 100 percent true. Everything that that Malachi Martin wrote was was basically very, very, very thinly veiled nonfiction, um, you know, just barely, barely hidden. And w we had this just a few episodes of the, just a few episodes ago, and we posted a link to you can go online and see what all the code names Malachi Martin uses for all of these actual real people and so forth. I'll post this it again with this episode as well. Okay. Okay. And, it, and it's all real. Um, so like all of us, I don't think Martin was perfect. And, but I think that, you know, he's, he's well, well above 50%. If we're going to, if we're going to make a, a spectrum, um, I think his work is important. Um, he, he called the, the whole attempted faux abdication of Ratzinger and the dual papacy thing. He basically called that, although he thought the the timeline that he had, he had it happening to JP too. Um, so he was one off, but it, it's, that's one of the things I think that's, that's the not creepy. Well, I guess creepy is a good word is when you, you read Martin and you see how he called the situation that we're in right now that, you know, there's, a pope who's going to be fake coerced out and the ascendancy of, of an anti-pope and so on and so forth. And you're just reading this saying, well, clearly, clearly he knew years and years and years ago. And this whole plan had been hatched 
and and was being discussed and maneuvered. Um, the the pre maneuverings were going on decades and decades and decades ago that they kind of knew what they were going to try to do. And here it is. And we're we're living it. We're living it. The only thing is, like I said, he was off that he thought it was going to be JP2 and it wasn't. It was it was the next pope. It was Pope Ratzinger. Well, and a friend of mine made the comment that uh, Malachi Martin was of the belief that JP2 was essentially reliving um, the the episode of, of St. Peter in Chains and that he was the. He he was the the pontiff, but he his ability to act was shackled, and it, it makes me think about um, the current uh, pontifical situation, whether or not he was off by one. Which, of course, the first time you said that, I, I immediately kind of raised an eyebrow and said, "Wait, Malachi Martin was a programmer? No." Um, and the, the programmers <laughs> listening will get that joke. But uh, talking about Peter and chains, you, you to your thesis that um, Benedict is the pope has there. Who, who, who would be a better example of Peter in Chains? Yeah, and it wasn't, I don't think that JP2 was Peter in Chains. I mean, we've talked about this before. I think that JP2 was more concerned with his own cult of personality with, with the objective of bringing down the Iron Curtain and liberating Poland and, you know, all of, you know, the Slavic people, which he was so obviously attached to. And he was more concerned with building up the cult of personality around himself. And he was a terrible administrator. He was a terrible, terrible judge of character and surrounded himself with, you know, some pretty odious people um, and would would listen to and take the advice of and the recommendations of people that had absolutely no business being anywhere around um, the Roman pontiff at all. Um, So I think that that was that was JP2's problem. He was basically a game show host. It, it is, in fact, Pope Benedict who said, and I believe he said it to, who did he say it to? Bishop Filet? I think he said it to Bishop Filet. Bishop Filet of the SSPX goes, sees him, says something to him, you know, well, you know, Holy Father, you're the Pope. You have the authority. You can do whatever you want. You have the authority. And Ratzinger looked at him, and Ratzinger is reigning as the Pope at this point, sitting in his office in the Apostolic Palace, looks at him, points at the door, and says, my authority ends at that door. That is Peter in Chains. That is Peter in Chains. I heard that story from Bishop Filet himself. He came, to the, he came to the Midwest and gave a conference. This was within a year of Benedict being uh, elected to uh, to the papacy and giving a, a an up just a general update on what's the status between the Society of St. Pius X and Rome and telling that story, going to Castle Gandolfo. And it mm-hmm. was um, Filet, and I forget who the one assistant was. And I want to say, if if I'm not mistaken, and I probably I'm, I might be, it was uh, Pope Benedict and Castrian Hoyos, or had, had he already retired? But it was it was it was fillet the Pope and then one assistant each and then it, it mm-hmm. really turned into a, a direct one on one and it was this sense of yeah you've got a point Bishop fillet but I can't do anything about it kind of thing yeah. that, that was the impression yeah. I got yep which again it makes you scratch my it makes me scratch my head and say well but you're in charge 
Yeah. Unless, of course, unless and, of course uh, he is of the firm belief that if he puts his foot down and calls an instant press conference, he's dead before the sun sets, which, you know, there are worse ways to try to get to heaven. Well, I mean, yeah, the, this whole notion um, that that any bishop, cardinal, priest, anybody, you know, there's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do. Yes, there's always at least one thing that you can do, and that is die. That is get up on the cross with Christ and die. And that is why Cardinal Burke or Cardinal anyone else, that's why you get to wear that those all those fancy red, uh, fancy red, red cassocks and so forth. That's why the cassock well, is colored red. Yes, it's your blood. And the Kapamania is the trail of your blood going going off behind you. Um, as you've been like like so many of them, brutally, brutally executed. That's why bishops have are going to have red piping. It's whenever you see that red, that red is is blood. And you say, "There's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do. You can die, and you're expected to die. You're expected to die in defense of the church, in defense of the faith, in defense of the flock." And so, yeah, there, there is something you can do. But of course, so many of them have basically no supernatural faith. I don't think that even occurs to them. I don't think it even occurs to them. And um, I was going to make a point. Oh, with regards to Pope Ratzinger and being Peter in chains and all, with these developments over the past couple of weeks of this Catholic Me Too and seeing how ruthless and corrupt and sinister this whole culture in in the College of Cardinals, in the Episcopacy, how, how, it, do we not now see, and, and isn't it becoming more and more obvious that this whole question as to whether or not Ratzinger was coerced, you know, obviously my thesis, my thesis is about the substantial error, but why did Ratzinger even attempt this substantial error of trying to bifurcate and fundamentally transform the papacy into a collegial synodal office? Why did he even attempt that maneuver? Um, are we not seeing how truly evil these men are and what they're capable of? He said from the very beginning, he said at the very, like the day or within a week or his first mass of when he was elected pope, pray for me that I do not flee for fear of the wolves. Who the hell do you think he was talking about? He was talking about these sodomites. And are we not now seeing and understanding? Well, how could he be coerced? Well, shh, you tell me. How it's it's so clear how evil these men are, and you know the the main um, the main theory with regards to coercion with regards to Ratzinger right now still revolves around his brother who is older than he is and his and who is still alive, and who was the head of a choir for years a boys choir for years and years in Germany, and there was. Boys in that choir were abused by priests who were under Georg Ratzinger, who is who is the pope's brother. Um, it isn't even the implication that Georg Ratzinger himself was the one doing the abusing. The implication that I've heard all along is that Georg Ratzinger 
is perhaps one of these people, one of these priests who turned a blind eye to things going on. Um, and that is and that is what people have been using against Pope Benedict. Whether or not that's true, whether or not it's something worse than that, um, whether or not it's something completely different, we don't know right now. Um, we'll definitely find out the general judgment, but it won't surprise me if something comes to light and we, we do see and we do realize what exactly it is that these sodomites did and threatened Pope Benedict Ratzinger with to make him even attempt this horrific maneuver that that he has done and has caused this entire ascendancy of the Bergoglian anti-papacy. But I think you just have to be denying objective reality at this point to sit there and say, well, no, that's not possible. Pope, Pope Benedict wasn't coerced in any way. Look at these people and look at the crimes these men are committing and, and covering up for each other and how wicked and evil these sodomites are. How could you not think, how could you not think that Pope Benedict was not coerced in some way? So there you go. Which gets right into the Matthew 1720 initiative, and uh, now is as good a time as any to uh, mention that. Yeah, absolutely. Fasting, full fasting twice a week. I do Tuesday and Friday just because logistically that works the best for me, although sometimes I move it, advance one day, you know, or go one day after, whatever it is. Um, the only thing I would remind people is you should never fast on Sunday because remember every Sunday is the first class feast of the resurrection. So you shouldn't fast on Sunday, but any other day of the week, whatever, full fasting and the intention goes like this. This is how I pray it every single day. That anti-Pope Bergoglio be publicly recognized and removed as the anti as anti-pope and that the whole thing be nullified. That Pope Benedict Ratzinger be publicly recognized as having been the one and only living pontiff all along since he was validly elected in 2005, whether he likes it or not. That anti-Pope Bergoglio, um, after he is removed, that at some point before he dies, he repents, he reverts to Catholicism, because I don't think it can be said that he's Catholic at this point, reverts to Catholicism, dies in a state of grace, and eventually at some point is purged and achieves the beatific vision. That likewise, Pope Benedict Ratzinger repents, dies in a state of grace, and also someday achieves the beatific vision. Um, I, I dare say that I, this initiative, this is the only one that I've seen, is the only initiative whereby, you know, the, the fate of, of Bergoglio's soul is incredibly important, is tied up with all of this, and we're not going to shrug our shoulders and walk away and say, Bob, screw him, screw him. He's like any other criminal, and in fact, he's one of the he's one of the worst criminals in human history. Bergoglio is for what he has done, what he is doing. Um, I had a little bit of a email conversation with someone earlier today because you know everybody's talking about capital punishment and so forth. Y you do you know what Pius V would have done to Bergoglio? Do you know what Saint Charles Borromeo would have done? To Bergoglio? It would have been absolutely medieval. It would have been absolutely medieval. They would have 
burned his ass. They would have burned him at the stake. Um, how can you not argue that what anti-Pope Bergoglio has done and continues to do isn't capital? Look at, look at the souls that he is driving into hell. How many people have died within the last five plus years who died unrepentant of their sins, mortal sins, because of anti-Pope Bergoglio? How many people have died within the last five years who left the church and then saw anti-Pope Bergoglio and said, well, yeah, I mean, this guy's, this guy's the Pope and he's saying I was right to leave. He's saying it's all bullshit. And how many people died outside of the church, ratified in their in their apostasy or in their schism, because of anti-Pope Bergoglio? I mean, it's it, it's it's terrifying to think about this. This man is is truly a serial killer. He's he's a murderer of souls. He's a serial killer of souls. Um, and so, yeah, of course, in a sane society. He is, and, and I've made this point before, anti-pope is not any sort of a title. It does not confer any authority, nothing. He, he is a street criminal. All anti-pope is, is a statement, is, is a statement of criminal status. And he is an arch criminal, perhaps the greatest criminal in the last 2000 years because, because of the sheer size of what he has done in, in this, his war against the church. Um, and I, so, I would put him maybe in the top 20. I mean, it, it's hard to say who's driven more souls into hell. I mean, when, when you're competing with Luther and Calvin, you're up against some pretty stiff competition. Yeah. I mean, but they've, they've had more time, you know, they've had those five centuries. Um, ima- imagine what this, this mess is going to look like if there is no supernatural intervention, and and the anti-church is allowed to persist and continue. Um, imagine and compare what was the population, what was the total population of planet Earth 500 years ago? I think it was probably way less than one billion people on the entire planet. Well, that was that, shortly after the Black Plague, which took out two thirds of Europe. Exactly. And so even even if you go all the way over to China and Japan and then all the way and all of the all of the people who are running around in North and South America, all these indigenous people, I don't think there were a billion human beings alive 500 years ago. I think it was a few hundred million. And so now what we're talking about is we're talking about this. And as we go forward and the population is going to continue to increase as it should. Um, right now we're at seven and a half billion souls and, and, and we have the internet and all of these people, the entire surface of the planet is to some extent or another aware of anti-Pope Bergoglio and the lies that he's telling. And so everybody is in a, in a more direct way, um, susceptible to this. Um, and it's, it's interesting because now when when Luther happened, um, isn't it interesting that exact at exactly the same time, almost the same number of people were converted, baptized, brought into the church over in the Americas? So, you know, and not just span- brought into the church, but brought in from abject Satanism, oh, where, from they, Satanism where, where yeah. they would sacrifice 60, 80,000 people 
at yep. the temple of Quetzalcoatl, ripping yep. the hearts out of people while they're alive and chucking their bodies down the steps and people then yep. hacking up the bodies and eating them raw, basically. It, yeah. this is, this, these weren't noble savages. No, 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 no. And that all basically stopped overnight in historical terms. It all stopped overnight. And well, it talking was, about I, standing manfully, the Spanish conquistadors, for all the maligning that they've taken, they see this nonsense and say, this will not stand. Or yes. as Winston Churchill would say, this is the kind of nonsense up with which I will not put. And they put their <laughs> Catholic faith to, to work. And, you know, it took a little, took a little while. The, the deeds of man are only so strong. And then finally, the grace of, of, of Our Lady. Our Lady um, of Guadalupe, absolutely. Our Lady of Guadalupe. And, and if you're not familiar with her, well, get familiar with her. There's, I'll, I'll, I'll find a decent sermon to link to that in the show notes. That's one, that's one advantage of doing these in a can episodes is that I don't, I'm not rushed to uh, get this published this week. So <laughs> I'll, find yeah. a, I'll find a really good sermon to link to this because uh, the story of, of Our Lady of Guadalupe, if all you know of, of it is it's, it's a devotion of the Mexicans and it's an apparition that happened on this continent, assuming you're in North America, you don't know anything. You need to really study this. I mean, the, the, uh, the tilma on which the, the image of uh, Our Lady was imprinted, first off, the threads of that fabric shouldn't have lasted this long. That's one mm-hmm. miracle by itself. Secondly, I think in the 1980s, NASA scientists did um, spectral imagery on, on, the, on the eyes of Our Lady. And they saw the reflection, the corneal reflection of... of um, the room. The room. Of, of, <laughs> yeah. of, um, I was to say Don Lewis. What's, what was the guy's name? Juan Diego. Juan Diego. Okay. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Wrong, wrong continent. Um, Juan Diego. <laughs> and and uh, this is something... <laughs> if you've been following uh, the Super Nerd Twitter feed over the last eight days, I've been posting some stuff about uh, surveillance capabilities. Um, the idea of being able to see a reflection in a photograph, uh, it's called corneal reflection and corneal imaging. This is something that is, is with modern technology, is, is just becoming uh, reliable. Uh, Our Lady did it five, six hundred years ago. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's compelling. And the fact that she said, okay, Luther is going to do his thing, and all of these people in Northern Europe are going to be lost— and that's that's another that's another testimony to the fact that that those people are lost. They're lost. The the whole Lutheran, the whole Anglican thing. Our Lady is not going to execute this maneuver by which a, almost an almost exactly same number of people are brought into the church and essentially saved in broad terms, if the people who were trailing off after Luther, Luther, Calvin, you know, Wesley, what all the Anglican crap. I mean, it makes no sense. If those people in Northern Europe are still in the church, then why is there this almost simultaneous offsetting of these, of the loss of Northern Europe with the gain of all of the indigenous peoples in the Americas? Um, so it's it's a compelling thing. But see, the point today is with anti-Pope Bergoglio and all these people being lost, I mean, there really isn't, I don't know, I guess you could maybe say China, but we've we've had the ability to evangelize the entire planet for decades and decades and decades now. And so there isn't, you know, it isn't the same dynamic as when the Spanish conquistadors uh, 
um, and Columbus before that and the Portuguese and so on and so forth discovered the discovered the Americas. And then here are these millions of people who are, you know, essentially brand new people that, that people over in Europe didn't even know existed didn't even know existed. And so there's nothing like that now. I mean, we know who everyone is and we know where everyone is and there's there's no more planet Earth and lost peoples uh, or unknown peoples to be evangelized. We've we've pretty much covered the entire thing. There's only a few handfuls of of people in um there's an island south of of Sri Lanka, I think that has some poor uh, population of poor savages that no one that no one will go and evangelize because oh that would be that would be terrible there's probably a few pockets of people in Papua New Guinea that haven't been contacted and there's a few pockets of people left in the Amazon that haven't been contacted and that's an absolute tragedy it's an absolute tragedy this whole notion that we shouldn't be going and we shouldn't be converting these people these people live as savages and they they are without our Lord and his holy church, and there is no salvation outside of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. The notion that we should just leave people in their in their paganism like that um, is is so uncharitable. and it, it treats them like animals. It treats them like they're animals in a zoo. Well, isn't this interesting? We have these pockets of people in the Amazon, and ooh, we just want to study them. Um, no, you need to go, you need to convert them, you need to bring them into the church and then bring them into civilization because it is beneath their dignity that they're running around naked. It is beneath their dignity that they are cannibals. It, it all, the, the way they live is beneath their dignity as human beings and they should be brought into the church and into civilization and it is it is sick and it is a failure in charity and it is a it is a narcissistic decadence that that we do not go in and and get these get those people out of there and bring them bring them into the church and into civilization and this was supposed to be the short edition of the uh, the church in questions. <laughs> um, I have a feeling we're based on the, the questions. I mean, we only got through four of the questions that were available on the churchy topic. So this will be part one. And I've already kind of penciled in. This is the dark side because uh, it, it was more uh, serious topics and, and um, not so happy topics. So hopefully, so happy, hopefully the rest yeah. will be uh, a little more uplifting. But uh, if you have email or if you have questions that you'd like to email into the podcast, or suggestions or feedback, the email address is podcast at bon, barnhart.biz. Masses for Anne's Benefactors. If you are hearing this podcast, then there was a mass offered for Anne's Benefactors today, seven days a week, rain or shine, doesn't matter. And of course, every week there is a requiem for everybody who died in the previous week. Please, please, please remember these priests in your prayers. They have to go to confession just like us. Um, and they've got... These are pretty saying the, the, the old mass. So in, in terms mm -hmm. of um, being in the middle of the circular firing squad, uh, these priests don't have it easy. Uh, yeah. They, they, they have it hard in this life, and they're going to stand a tough judgment because to whom much is given, much will be expected, especially it answers. Why didn't you reach that soul? Why did you not you know, pray for that person? So please pray for them. They, they definitely need our help as well. The Barnhart Podcast is a production of Super Nerd Media. If you found something of value in this or other episodes and would like to return some value, please visit supernerdmedia.com for more information. And any parting thoughts on this question set? 
On this question set, no, I think we beat beat this one to death <laughs> yet again. Um, again, don't want to be a, a, a single topic space, but the, these things are all happening, and I think a lot of people are waiting for for us super nerd to to talk about this. And I I do think that it helps people to hear these things discussed openly. And um, you know, let's get this information out there and get people praying on this and discerning this and and hopefully we can we can do some good here. And I just want to reiterate my undying gratitude to you, Super Nerd, for all your hard work and to all the benefactors and supporters out there. Thank you so much for everything. I I there's there's just nothing I can say. There's nothing I can say. I unite myself to the holy sacrifice of the mass every single day and also pray outside of that for all of you, for benefactors and supporters, be assured of my prayers. I wish I could do more. I wish I could do more. But then again, as I've said many times, what more is there than the holy sacrifice of Calvary? But in, in certainly in, in a temporal sense, I wish that I could do more. And all I can do is say thank you. Okay. Until next time, I am Super Nerd. And I'm Ann. Thanks, guys. God bless. <laughs>